Steve Lee. I'm a sound effects wrangler, a Hollywood historian, and I run the website HollywoodLostAndFound.net. The Wilhelm scream is a sound effect that was recorded in 1951 for a film called Distant Drums. It was a Gary Cooper movie. And they needed the sound for a man being bitten by an alligator and being dragged underwater. One of the actors in the film, and we believe it was Sheb Woolley, came in and, and did this scream that was used in the film, and it was archived away in the Warner Brothers Sound Effects Library. This collection is used for many, many different films, and so that scream, that scream that he performed for that film, got used in so many different films and westerns under the Warner Brothers banner, and then cut to 1976 when Ben Bird is researching Star Wars. He uh, actually tracked down the master of the sound at Warner Brothers and started using the sound as sort of his own personal sound signature. He started using it in all the films he worked on, just sort of as a little in-joke and a little sort of signature of his own. It's in all the Star Wars films. It's in all the Indiana Jones films. So far, there's over 200 films that it's appeared in. The man getting bit by an alligator in the screen. just pre-record all my segments so I don't have to come in. <laughs> and yes, as you heard, that is the infamous sound guru, founder of the Hollywood Sound Museum, Steve Lee. Hi. And but here he is live and in person in studio today. I made the trick. For this latest episode of Behind the Lens. Welcome. Yay. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator and host of Behind the Lens where we go behind the lens and below the line. With the movers and shakers of the movie and TV makers. And this is one of them right here with us today. And also joining us again today, <laughs> if you're watching on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream, two of our favorite little golden boys <laughs> are back to visit. They've been here before. Yes. They're here Actually, again. Um, I think only one of these has been here before. Only one. We I mean, had yeah. the other one. Yeah, we had Alan Spletz for Black Stallion Returns, which is currently visiting its family right now. But uh, these are both Bill Varney's for Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, there's nothing wrong with nothing that. Nothing wrong with that. No. Especially since Harrison Ford movies and... Harrison Ford has another movie coming out this Friday. That's right. And it has Alan Splett sound effects in it. I have to tell you that story. Oh, we tell, oh well, let's yeah. just dive right in and let's hear that. Um, well, uh, Ann Krober, who is Alan's uh, widow, uh, graciously uh, um, gave us a custodianship of, of Alan's great library, which is like 5,000 quarter-inch tapes. It's this huge collection. Uh, but she had gotten a call from a friend at uh, Fox that started working on Call of the Wild. Uh, they wanted to license some of the sound effects. And uh, so we, we sent over uh, a bunch of the tapes of, of Alan's wolf recordings, wolves from um, Never Cry Wolf. Mm -hmm. Really brilliant stuff. And apparently those, those made it into the, into the show. So. There's a lot of wolves howling yeah. in, in the Call of the Wild. Well, Alan did an amazing job on Never Cry Wolf. He recorded a bunch of wolves and just, just really did. Never Cry Wolf is just a brilliant sound job. It's just, it's, 
uh, there's some really minimalist moments where you hear these wonderful evocative backgrounds and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then little tiny things like a mouse squeak and then really big things like the wolves, you know, howling and attacking and all that. And it was really, really an amazing job. And uh, the supervisor of the show, Call of the Wild, said, you know, we got to get some of that stuff. So it worked out well. Well, and it sounds fabulous in the film. I've already seen it. Mm-hmm. And opens it, on my birthday. On Friday. On the 21st, yeah. And he's giving a plug for his birthday, <laughs> among other things today. No, I'm just saying. I'm looking forward to Friday. We're going to have fun. But, uh, but yeah. But uh, no, and there are some sequences in there uh, from a sonic perspective where it's totally silent in, yeah. in the pitch of night in the Yukon. You can't hear anything. There's not wind moving. And then all of a sudden you hear a chorus of wolves yeah. and it is spectacular. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. A lot of filmmakers don't know, don't appreciate how to um, embrace silence because you can, you can do yeah. so much with silence. It's, it's, it's really neat. Well, that's uh, on the film Beguiled from a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So much of that film is silence. Yeah. And then you just get punctuation marks of nature, of, of the katydids, sure. uh, the crickets, the an old doorknob <laughs> turning, a creak of one wooden step, which as anyone who's tried to sneak in now their parents' house in the middle of the <laughs> night in their teens in an older home, you know that is the kiss of death. And has a very distinct sound. Um, (laughs) But, you know, as we were talking before the show, there's Mm. this year, the past couple years, but this year, the past in 2019, some amazing sound work on films. Yeah, it was a really tough year um, to decide. I was actually on one of the committees for the Golden Reels for the motion picture sound editors uh, for the best sounding uh, feature. And uh, it was tough. It was tough, and I, I dutifully listened to all of them, and uh, it was amazing stuff. Yeah. Well, I know, uh, you know, I was disappointed that Mark Steckinger and his team at Formosa did not, you know, <laughs> make it to an Academy Award nomination for John Wick Three. Yeah. Because, and it's funny because wh- I just happened to flip to my page of notes from yes. my interview with Mark. <laughs> You've got. Ten sounds per gun, layering gunshots, glass, dog paws, dog growls, two different types, knives, bones breaking, rain in differentiating degrees, footsteps, library, bare hands, books in combat, ballet on stage floors. I mean, it is a cacophony, but beautifully put together. No, they're pros. And, you know, and, and then, of course, we come to the Academy Award winners, Ford versus Ferrari. Which was a brilliant job. I was just telling you earlier that uh, two of the sound recordists on it are, are your friends of mine, Eric Potter and uh, John Fasal, who recorded a lot of those cars. And they're like, they're like the top of the line. If you you know need a car recording for a show, you usually they're usually one of your first calls. Those two guys, and uh, yeah, they did some amazing stuff in that film. Oh, and yeah. you know I've talked about that for months uh, after I first heard it. Yeah, and it, it's outstanding. And it just aggravated me to no end that, quote unquote, critics <laughs> um, and reviewers, they'd say, what's so special? And it's like, have you listened to this? <laughs> yeah. And the differentiation between each car motor, 
each speed, each gear change. It's part of the story. You know, you want to be able to cut between the cars and just recognize them by the sound if you don't necessarily see something or you're on a really tight shot of something, you know exactly what car it is because they've taught you because of the sound. And that's a real art, making all of them distinctive and have their own flavor and you know, and you can make it more threatening by doing discordant things or adding adding animal growls, and you know, make it make it more interesting. Yeah, that's those are all old tricks that uh, we do to move the story along. On yeah, a, on and, a level. and with Ford versus Ferrari, the the sound mm-hmm. really went hand in hand with Phaedon Papa Michael's cinematography. Oh sure, and because so much of that is. That sound has to be synced with what we're seeing on camera. Oh yeah. In terms of speed, motion, angle, wind thrust. Mm-hmm. So just some excellent, excellent stuff this year. Yeah. It was it was pretty amazing. And uh nineteen seventeen was oh. just brilliant too, oh. because I mean the the way the film is staged, you know, with the continuous look of it, uh that creates so many different problems for sound too, because you have to make a you know, a, a this this you know the soundscape that sounds like it's you're still you're moving from one area into another and it's just you know it, it very delicate the way that they have to handle the transitions of the sound but still make it seamless, um, really brilliant stuff and also period films with the period war machines and things like that are always tricky to you can't just go out and record some of that old stuff anymore. You have to make it or you have to find collectors who have some of the stuff and just happen to be taking it out for battle that day. Yeah, it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. You know, you can record old, like, you know, you know, black powder explosions and things like that, that, you know, sort of replicate what they did, but it's a really tough balance to get it right and authentic. Well, and in 1917, the intricacy, because you also have, various amounts of troops mm-hmm. with different types of footwear and in mud you've got the one sequence where you've got Mark Strong and uh, George Mackay and they're in mud and you've got tires in mud yeah. and then you've got artillery in the background yeah. and you know really amazing yeah and i think the last truly the last quote unquote war movie that I think had sound that exemplary was Hacksaw Ridge, Mel mm. Gibson's film, and before that, Saving Private Ryan. Well, you're talking about Gary again, Gary Gary Rydstrom. He's he's brilliant. I love Gary. Oh yeah, he's great. Every time I get to talk to Gary, it's always so fun. We've had the best interviews. No, he's marvelous. No, I love Gary dearly, and he actually he shot a video for us for our uh, our campaign that we have going right now. He's 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 just a sweet guy too, a brilliant I, artist and just a nice guy. And I watched that video. Oh yeah, and he says <laughs> nice things about you. I, he did. It's very surprising. Yeah, <laughs> after all I've done to him, no. <laughs> and Gary is, of course, he's dubbing today. He's yeah, he's he's dubbing today. I tried to get him uh, to call in, but uh, I, he's pretty busy right now. So well, you know, that's what happens when you're the best of the best. Yeah. Yeah, you're always busy. But, you know, you mentioned the museum. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the museum. What's happening? Well, we're just this pushing is, along. This is your fourth time on yeah, the show. Yeah, I know. It's, it's been like three or four years that I came up with the concept, and it's sort of the slow burn. Uh, but luckily, all that time, it's the, you know, the concept has been going around, and more people have heard about it. And we're getting some great feedback from people. But we're still, you know, we're still picking up speed and trying to generate some revenue for it. And uh, we've pursued a couple of really big grants that we're hoping to get this year. Um, one of them specifically is to uh, to digitize the K. Rose Library, which we have. Um, 
but yeah, it's just it's it's it takes a long time, especially when I have such a minimal crew right now, just just me sort of pursuing this dream. But uh, you know, everyone has been so sweet and supportive and all that. And we're getting some great uh, feedback from people and uh, people helping us uh, get some of this stuff uh, ready for display. And we're hoping to have a pop-up before the end of the year. I say that every year, but... Um, it's, it's getting closer yeah, to being a reality. It really is. It's actually... And we've gotten more wonderful stuff. We've gotten some amazing collections, uh, some great equipment. Um, what are some of the standout pieces... Because I know people are turning stuff over to you all yeah. the time. So I'm curious, what are some of the, well, the I don't pieces want, for you that are standing I don't want to jinx it too much to talk about some of the specific pieces, but uh, I, we have a bunch of moviolas. We have Kay Rose's moviola, which she used on the Oscar-winning film The River that she mm-hmm. uh, did sound design for, which we'll probably talk about a little more later. Uh, we've got the Alan Splett Library, which is 5,000 tapes of his collection, and he worked on so many amazing films like Elephant Man and... Eraser head. He, you know, he worked with David Lynch quite often. Uh, just you know, some great equipment. We've got some old synthesizers that some of the big, uh, you know, synth sound designers used in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, just I, it, it's all sitting there in in my vault. You know, just just waiting to be, uh, you know, viewed by everyone. So. Yeah. But in the meantime, you're cataloging all yeah. of these, all not only all of the physical pieces, but you're also cataloging the individual, all these reel-to-reel tapes. Yeah, that's what takes the longest is the sound, the cataloging the, the sound libraries, um, especially the stuff that's on quarter-inch tape, because we'll transfer it all the way through the complete tape, and then we'll start digitally breaking it down into individual cues. But some of the stuff, just to, to keep the, the history of it, I want to keep intact so you can listen to it all the way through and hear especially some of the the production recordings and, mm-hmm. and the the session recordings it's always fascinating i remember you know uh, about 10 or 15 years ago when the beatles anthology came out mm-hmm. and they released a lot of the session recordings and it was always more fascinating for me to listening between the cues and you hear them talking about yeah. you know use this instrument and oh, i don't like what he did there you know that kind of thing See, that's what and, i love yeah, hearing yeah and and it's the same with sound effects you know you'll you'll hear them you know playing around with a prop or something and they'll break it or they'll move it in, in a certain way and hey, no that's that's good i like that let's do it that way and that's that's always the the really fascinating stuff for me. And unfortunately, when you're in a working sound house, a lot of that stuff just gets cut out because they they want the sound. They don't you know care about the mucking about to get there. They just want to be able to pull it and cut it and put it in the show. So it's it's been a heartbreak sometimes when you find some of these libraries and that stuff is just gone. It landed on the cutting yeah, room floor. Exactly. So I like to listen to the raw sessions all the way through. You know. How much, how, what percentage of what you've accumulated so far in terms of those quarter inch tapes would you say, you know, have all those, the chit chat, the production sounds? Not many. I, I actually, I managed to save um, a couple dozen quarter inch tapes from the old Weddington Library, which is where I worked with Richard Anderson, Mark Mangini, and those guys. And those were pretty finely cut. I mean, they, they really uh, were meticulous. I mean, I, I did a good chunk of it and I followed their edict of, you know, make it ready to cut. Uh, so, you know, I'm kind of regretting that. But stuff like the K. Rose library that we're looking at right now, it's it's all complete. They're all complete wow. takes. Um, so, yeah, it's fascinating. It's it's not often that you find something that, that pristine and, and mm-hmm. thorough um, because, yeah, they're, they're, we're making them for a specific 
project. You know, we're we're getting them ready for for use. So it's yeah, it's 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 a joy to hear some of the original stuff, but I don't expect it. It's kind of a surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and and I think that's something that we found after my dad passed, and all of this library of stuff going back into the '30s, right? And a lot of things that he had saved back when he first started in television in 1948, All of that we turned over to Broadcast Pioneers for their digital archive project to save all of that, the history of television and radio in Philadelphia. Sure. And I know some of the quarter-inch stuff I had listened to, Mm -hmm. uh, and which will cause an uproar among a couple <laughs> siblings when they found out when Uh-oh. they find out I listened to it. Uh-oh. Um but there were all there were things like that in there and I understand from a lot of the beta and the video ta- the tapes, empty time coded stuff that he had managed to help save I think he saved something like 80,000 hours. Wow. For the pioneers, they just had to go get it. Yeah, yeah. Um and he did that while he was in a hospital bed. Oh, my gosh. Um, he was so determined to help them save this. And I think there's a lot of raw footage in there. That's great. Um, going down to, you know, news footage of the popes visiting Philadelphia and, you know, big things like the move confrontation and Mayor Good blowing up half the 16-block radius in the city. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. But that's where the real gems are. No, that's absolutely. Um, I was actually looking at this log of, of sounds that, uh, you know, I've been on the show before and we've played a bunch of these sounds from my collection. Um, but I noticed some. I don't know whether we played like it before. like his collection. Yeah, it is. His it collection. is my collection. So yes. there, no, it's just going into the museum. But uh, on Gremlins 2... Um, the, the guys, I, we might've played this one on a previous show, but it, it falls into what we were just talking about. Um, the, uh, the actors who did the original gremlin voices, the, you know, the American version came back and did all the foreign versions too, because, you know, they had such distinctive voices. Uh, they just, they had, they were there with a, with a linguist, you know, helping them with the accents and all that. But uh, they, they performed all the foreign dialogue in Gremlins voices. And those sessions were hilarious. And I was able to archive some raw um, sessions uh, where they, um, you get to hear, you get to hear all of the little directions and things. Um, For the, the foreign language. Yeah. Club. Because they're, they're struggling to get the words out and to get the <laughs> accent right and all that. And uh, if we could uh, play, she's in the middle, so I think we just got a phone call. But if we could. We're seeing what yeah. Pam is doing. Yeah, you know, Pam is doing. As everybody, oh, our regular listeners know, when Steve is on the show, it's kind <laughs> of a free-for-all. Yeah, we have technical issues and that sort of thing. Oh, we have Vicky on. Oh. So do we want to keep her on hold for a second and hear Yeah, Vicky, lines? please, please hold for just one second. I'm okay. finishing up a story. So, yeah, Pam, if you could play cue number nine. This is a session from the Gremlins foreign voice um session i think this is howie mandel who French. did the, yeah cue number nine howie mandel was the voice of gizmo and i think if this is the clip that i'm thinking of he had to it, and it's also a struggle sometimes when you have a line in the film that's very short but the french version is very long yes he has to say light bright which in french is lumiere brillant <laughs> 
There are a few more syllables in there. Yes, there are. So this this is the raw session of him struggling to get that out. Okay. Well, let's hear it. Lumière. FR six hundred two Gizmo. Lumière brillante. Okay. Recording a bit. Okay. Screaming. He doesn't yes. have time to say it fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's Joe Dante. He says, he says, you know what's happening? His head, I'm, my head's caught in a photocopy machine. When the light comes on, when the light comes on, I'm not, it, it hurts. So I'm going, okay, okay, but you must articulate it even rapidly. But, oh, lumière brillante. Lumière brillante. Okay. So you get the idea. So, I mean, all that stuff would have been lost if we just saved the circled take, you know, the one that was used. And it's hilarious. <laughs> and, you know, what they should have done was just hire Ewan McGregor because, as everybody knows who has seen him play Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast, his French Slightly is... Slightly different. His French is immaculate. Slightly different character. But... Anyway. But let's, words, we're we're but keeping let, Vicky waiting. Okay. Let's not... Yeah, so, let's, and now, Vicky, Vicky <laughs> Sampson. Yes. Go for it. Welcome, Vicki Sampson, to Behind the Lens. Hi, Vic. Hello, hello. How you doing? Or I should say, boom, boom. <laughs> it's okay. Hello. We're not looping you. It's all right. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining the Steve Lee free-for-all. Yeah, that's right. As I like to call it when Steve <laughs> sure. is here in it's always It's always pretty crazy when post, I'm on the post. show. Post-production is always a free-for-all. <laughs> <laughs> then Steve went into the right business. That's right. But I've, for I, sure. I've known Vicki for about 30 years, and she's been in the business almost, I don't know, what, 50 years, something like that, Vicki? I don't know. How long. No, not quite 50. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 Four, just, I don't know, 40-something. Something like that, I yeah. Got, I got in when I was 20, so all right, yeah, 40, yeah, almost, I guess. <laughs> but it's still not 50, so... <laughs> Still not fifty, okay, right. Good. right? You know, you've been in. You, yeah, I. I uh... You've been in the business for so long, Vicky, and of course, you're following in the footsteps of Kay. But I'm curious, what kind of changes have you seen from a sound perspective when it comes to films? Mm. Has it changed that much uh, in the process? The technology, or is sound still pretty much sound as sound as sound? Well, that's a that's a kind of a triplicate question. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know how to get rid of this echo in my head because I'm out of sync with myself, which is really annoying for a sound person. <laughs> is there anything I can do about that uh, or not? I, I don't have the radio on or anything. Huh? Yeah, because I'm not getting an echo here. Yeah, me st- neither. Hmm. Yeah, it's just me on my end. 
Um, okay, I'll try to muddle through. Um, so I think I think what I've noticed the change most is is some of the recording techniques have changed. So the production mixers aren't as well trained as they were in uh, analog when they had to record, you know, on quarter inch tape and um, just the microphone techniques have have changed. And I think people mistakenly think that, you know, like lobs are better or booms are better. And sometimes they just, they don't, they don't take the time that they need. Of course, they don't get a lot of time on set to fix things, but I've noticed that kind of dropping and the, the techniques and the, um, like, for example, I was working on a film a few years ago and I needed to find an original take and I pulled, I pulled out the take and there's no voice slate on it. Uh-huh. And I couldn't find it before or after, so I ended up stealing the little piece from the work track, which is, you know, the original, not the original yeah. recording. It's like a combine track of things. And I called the production mixer, who's, of course, not on the show anymore, you know, because we get the film months and months later. And um, he said, oh, we don't need to we don't need to voice slate anymore because everything's time coded slate. Uh... And I went, well, not to us in the sound world. We still need to know if something's, you know, 11 Apple take two. Um, yeah. <laughs> because it doesn't, the time code doesn't matter to us when we are in post. So just little things like that. Plus we've gone from, you know, film, uh, magnetic film to digital tracks and digital workstations and not movieolas. Um, and, and just, you know, so that part has changed. But the uh, what I like to tell students when I teach is that, it's really what you hear, how you learn to hear, exactly. and that's the biggest thing. Yeah, I, I, I don't think the process. Over over. When I worked, yeah, when I worked with my mom, when I was first working with her, um, she w- I was her apprentice, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I would sit with her, and she would run the film and tell me, okay, and she would stop it at 25 feet, uh, lose click um, at 36 feet, you know, extend the tail of this track. Uh, at 37 feet, add to the head of this track. So it gave me, a, and then I'd say, well, what what click? What pop? <laughs> and she'd play it over and over, and it's like I'd listen, listen. And she's playing on a moviola, which oh is very gosh. loud. You know, it's like a <laughs> sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she could hear a little tiny click or pop in the track that, in her estimation, takes the audience out of, the movie on a subconscious level because there's all this noise that shouldn't be there. You know, it's not a what we call a diegetic sound. It doesn't <laughs> go with anything. It's just like a mic pop, a click, something. Somebody drops something off stage. Um, doesn't doesn't deserve to be there. So I had to train my ears very carefully to listen to what what is she saying this click. And then I then I said to her, well, if I don't hear it after listening to it ten times, the audience isn't going to know the difference. <laughs> And she says, no, it, it, it affects them on a subconscious yeah. level that they're aware that they're watching a movie instead of being immersed in the experience of the movie, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, she was amazing. It was fun to watch her work. I, I was able to work with her on one show, so that was. I'm, I'm glad I have that. Which show did you get to work with Kay on? <laughs> Son of the Pink Panther. Uh, yeah, Roberto Benigni taking over the uh, Clouseau role, and it, <laughs> it was largely awful. Yes, that was a, that was an interesting <laughs> collaboration yeah. for sure. Yeah, but I got a, I got a trip to 
I got a trip to London for it to record all the ADRs. So oh, right. For me. I remember. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, I guess, uh, didn't Mark Mangini do that with her? I think it was the two of them sort of yeah. supervising. Yeah, yeah, so my mom did, my mom, you know, was like the dialogue ADR part of the oh, right. filmmaking. And, yeah. and Mark did the uh, effects and Foley. And, um, you know, it's a collaboration. Nobody makes a movie on their own. And now since um, I retired a few years ago and I'm devoting my time to directing and making my own films, um, you know, I, I want to teach young filmmakers or old filmmakers, whoever wants to learn, you know, that you fix things on the set. You don't wait for them to get fixed in post. Right. You know? Right. So that's my uh, yeah. that's my mission of teaching. Oh, absolutely. Because, um, you know, I, we gotta we got to tell them how things should be and how they could be, and it saves them so much more money and time down the line if they get it right on the set. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things from... Uh, from director Mark Rydell that my mom and I worked on like every one of his films since 1973 is when I joined his team. But he would call her before, you know, he did The Rose, The River, which is what my mom won her Oscar for, um, and uh, For the Boys, um, Intersection. Yeah, he did many, many great films. And um, on Golden Pond. <laughs> hmm. um, and he would, his his hint was on the set. He would say, and action. So he had this little bitty pause in between the and and the action and the and and cut. Room tone. I told this to some directors and they say, oh, you mean I should say and action. I went, no. no. You want the space in between because that's the noise floor that we yeah. use to fill all these little clicks and pops that are annoying. Room tone. On a subconscious level. Yep. Oh, my God. Yep. Well, you know, well, I don't know if that's too technical, but that's, <laughs> no, it's, it's, no, this is good stuff. It's good stuff because yeah. we are behind the lens. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I have to say, you right. mentioned one of my, I know this film has been very maligned by people. It is one of my favorite films that your mom was supervising sound editor on for the boys with Bette Midler yeah. and James Kahn. I am a huge devotee of that film and the, Whoa. and the Bless sound, you. the sound work. <laughs> is so good on there because we're going through so many decades with different sounds, be it um, the microphones, be it in war zones, be it artillery, be it, you know, everything. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, yeah. that's a great example of, um, like, Bette Midler wanted to record live when she could. So in the Vietnam sequence, um, uh she recorded that live and they had big, they had two 24 track trucks recording all the sounds live. And the, um, the young, this is interesting too, the big band thing that the Jimmy Khan character mm-hmm. had, you know, as his band, they were all young men cause they had to look young, but they didn't know how to play, you know, so in, to, to give that big sound. So they actually, you know, dubbed that over. Wow. Um, <laughs> Because they needed young people to look like they were there at that time period, but those guys couldn't play the band stuff. Uh, but um, and that sequence, you know, where the where the son uh, gets killed while she's singing. Yes, spoilers. Uh, that was one of the sequences. <laughs> yeah, well, people get killed at this stage, Steve. Really, <laughs> but, I'm kidding. Yeah. But you know, it's like a lot of slow motion stuff, and of course, you know, on our end, we cover 
all the sound because you never know if they're going to want to go with sound effects or straight with music or make it stylized. And so, you know, my mom cut all the all the sounds for the explosions and gun, but then in the mix we ended up kind of muting them and adding echo and reverb and making them sound like it's coming through his head, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and those are the those are the stylistic choices you make when you work on a film like do I want hyper reality or do I want, you know, imagined reality or suppressed reality, whatever you want to call it. And that is an, that's an exquisite sequence um, mm-hmm. being shot in slow-mo. Yeah, really and that is. sound, it's, it's very surreal. But you can distinguish that this is the sound of the exploding bombs and the, and the shrapnel hitting and the artillery going off. It just really... Yeah, and when his, when his, knee, when his knee hits the ground, oh. she put in a very low-end um, kind of a wompy thump thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That just really said it, and it matched to the music because music and sound have to talk to each other and, and collaborate as well. A lot of composers don't do that anymore; they just try to. Well, it's it's know, mostly a matter of time and schedules and things like that. Usually, they're working you know separate from us, and then we don't have a chance to get together until we're at the final mix, and then we run into all these. Conflicts. Well, I must say that um, John Williams was such a you know he's such a great artist and. He would give my mom uh, a comp, uh, you know, like a just a temp track of what he imagined his music would be like. So she was able to be free to put in like little birds and uh, things in between music hits. And he always followed the dialogue too. If you watch any of his oh, like yeah. Indiana mm-hmm. Jones, he'll duck down for yeah. uh, when people need to talk or if they're highlighting a sound effect. His music will kind of go underneath versus yeah. I'm going to play my music as loud as possible because <laughs> it's all about the music. Yeah. And that annoys me when I'm critiquing films. That annoys me to no end, and I hate it when I actually have to point out that you know the mix is so bad because the score just overplays and outshouts everything. Um, mm. We saw mm-hmm. that in Captain Phillips. Uh, in the in the mm. final third act scene, you've got helicopters, you've got waves, and you have a score that is so bombastic that it's wiping when it's wiping out helicopter noise <laughs> and and an ocean. You have a problem, yeah. And then yeah. you you can't hear any of the dialogue. Um, this was something right. that to this I day, mean, even even Jerry Bruckheimer on Pirates of the Caribbean, he would he would come into the mix and listen to what we did and. He'd say, lower the sound effects, lower the music, got to hear the dialogue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and the Avengers, to this day, it's still... Oh, my irk- gosh. I know, Steve's heard me complain about this. Oh, my gosh. Um, still, <laughs> in the big battle sequence in the Avengers, you cannot hear Scarlett Johansson's dialogue. Um, cannot hear it. The mix yeah. is such that, uh, you know, it's lost. So who knows what she's saying? That sort of thing happens. On, right. I, I right. heard that quite a bit on some of Christopher Nolan's films, too. Um, but he tends to direct it that way. He tends to like a cacophony of, of things. He doesn't necessarily mind that you don't hear all the dialogue as long as the emotional content is still there. Um, you know, I, it's up for debate. Well, he it's had up a for chance debate. on that, um, dark, what was it, Dark Knight, the one with uh, Bane? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He had a chance for the mixer to put in a little tiny microphone inside his mask because... You know, the production mixer is only going by what the director wants and needs. And 
Yeah, people were very mad that they couldn't understand Bain's yeah. dialogue. Um, another director who does who did that similarly is uh, Robert Altman, but he did it for an entirely different reason. Okay. Right. He yeah. did it because he, he wanted to capture everybody's sound. Like in life, you can subjectively kind of tune into somebody's dialogue, like at a, a nightclub or something. Mm-hmm. You want to yeah. listen to the person you're with, and you can tune out all that noise. Well, but he, he wanted the audience to have to work for it. Yeah. You know? So when you have things recorded, like every person had a mic. Um, yeah. You know, I remember one guy in a Q&A after one of his movies stood up and said, I couldn't really hear the dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> he had the nerve to ask that. Wow. And Altman said, well, go to the theater and pay your money and see it again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I understand it when you have a cacophony of people. And just like in life, every as you said, you know, you're out, you're in a nightclub or something or in a bar and you can tune out, you can tune in. But when you start getting into drowning out your dialogue with a, with score or mm-hmm. with something else, that to me is infuriating because it's why have the dialogue yeah. if you're not going to let people hear it? Yeah, it's there for a well, reason. Well, yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's it's just their opinion that maybe the dialogue doesn't matter, but the audience doesn't know that they right. and they. They think that when people talk that you should be able to hear them unless it's clearly the intention of, of them not hearing it, you know? Right, mm-hmm. right. Well, you know, I'm jealous of your mom. Your mom actually, she got to sound edit for two Bette Midler movies, for For the mm-hmm. Boys and... Well, they were friends, too. weren't they? And I For the on, Rose. I worked on both of those. Yeah. You yeah. lucky dog. Didn't didn't Bette actually present Kay an award at uh, the Mipsies one year? The, um, sh- yeah, the, yeah. Um, well, the river did. Oh, okay. Yeah, the rose didn't. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I thought that at the Golden Reels, Bet came by. The technology was sort of changing a little bit, so we had a, a very old-time mixer at Fox Studios who really wanted to just um, mix the guide track, which for I don't know, hopefully you guys know, but a, a guide track is just like a combination of, of production sound. It's not separate. You know, it's not a separate law. It's not a separate boom. It's just everything. Yeah, it's unedited. And we put yeah. everything out and overlap and make things sound smooth. And I was observing him on the mix, and he kept sneaking in the work track. And I'd say, ah, 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 no, use our track for that. And he just, he didn't. And so it could have been a fantastic mix. He just didn't have the wherewithal to. They had 24 track recording on that too, and um. Yeah, I was at the Wiltern Theater, actually, when they were shooting one of the scenes, which was so exciting. And Mark Rydell is a great director for getting, uh, making sure that everybody has what they need in post-production. So we did wild tracks with the audience of, like, pause, clapping. And, and the, the biggest thing about those kind of sequences when you have an audience of hundreds of people is to get clean ins, like the, the, the initial reaction, and then clean die out like clapping like you don't want to just cut everybody off and say stop clapping you want it to tailor you know um trickle out you know and so he would he would tell them that ahead of time and direct them like here you guys surge now you guys surge he would direct these people just for a wild track of the sound that's neat so he he knew his stuff and i just i love i love him for that I've been lucky to record crowds and have that opportunity to sort of, you know, give them visual cues to, you know, bring them up or die out. And, yeah, it's really great when mm-hmm. you can have that kind of session and you can take the time to do that sort of thing. I mean, thing. there's a sequence in the in the rows with um, 
Bette Midler's manager, who's played by Barry Primus, who ended up being like second unit director on, on the river and for the boys as well, um, where he takes, he's bringing Bette Midler, you know, from the, from the basement where her makeup was to backstage. And he's like, okay, Rose, you know, you're going to go out there and you're going to, you know, don't say the MF word, you know? (laughs) Um, And he's, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs because the band is literally right behind them on the stage playing loud music. Well, when they shot the scene, there was no music there. Oh yeah. But he knew there was going to be music, and so he projected his voice over what eventual music would be there. So it it just laid in so well, oh, and yes. he totally believed that it was shot at the same time. A lot of actors they like, oh, I don't need to, you know, project so loud because yeah. there's nothing happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, it takes a good director to tell them that sort of those sort of details too. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. So, Vicky, I am yes. in the midst of going through uh, your fabulous mother's library, um, and and just cataloging all this wonderful material. And and I really appreciate that you've uh, you've let me be the custodian of uh, this wonderful uh, wonderful collection. I, I hope to. Make... Who, who better to be that than you? Steve? Well, oh gosh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Who's crazy enough to do yeah. it other than Steve? Let's, well, that's true. Let, too, let's but, just cut I to mean, the I chase. think there's probably over fifty thousand sound effects in that library. It's, oh my god, it's pretty intense. And, and yeah, it's pretty intense. I had a I had a student, a former student of mine, who literally spent a year yeah. in my garage with two benches. You know, and I taught her how to wind film and splice film because most of these were on film, and um, and then transfer them into a, a digital environment. Yeah, and uh, it took her a year to go through all the sound. Yeah, that was Annette. She and, did. And she did all the up. film. Yeah, Annette Sowell. Yeah, she worked tirelessly. She did all the and, film um, material, and I've got all the quarter inches. I've got about five hundred quarter inch tapes that I'm sort of working my way through now. And we've got a grant that's going to help us uh, digitize a lot of them, but I've, I've boxed up a good chunk of them already. And uh, yeah, and it's an amazing timeline. The sound editors libraries are always this wonderful timeline. You can see all the movies they've done because they're usually in order. There's like a big chunk of tapes for this film and then the next film and then the next. So it's just fascinating to go through. You know, I'm curious, Vicki, you know, because of your own work, your mom's work, why do you think nobody has really gotten around to wanting to put together a sound museum until now? <laughs> um, granted, it's tedious work, but these uh, this is history. Um, just hearing the cadence, hearing the trill of a voice from the 30s versus something today. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all of these things, it speaks to the world. And, you know, the timeline. Um, and I could never... Well, I think it's like, you know, I think it's party. It's, it's like a little bit of parting the curtains, like don't go behind the curtain, <laughs> you know, to see the wizard. It's like a lot of people don't want to know the magic behind what they see in a movie or they think it's going to distract them. I mean, honestly, when I went to see 1917, I was curious. I was more curious about how... Uh, you know, the Sam Mendes put it together shot wise as a filmmaker. And mm-hmm. that kind of distracted me for the first, I don't know, 10 or 20 minutes. Um, and then I got into the story. It's like, okay, where did he make that cut? You know, <laughs> and, and um, there's a wonderful documentary out right now called making waves, the art of cinematic sound. Yes. It's fabulous. I was, I was going to, I was going to make a point of saying it. At U, at, yeah. At USC. 
And it just came out on uh, Blu-ray, DVD, and and it's streaming on all the platforms. Yep. Highly recommended. But yeah. what's so great? What's so great about it is I took my my mother-in-law that I've known for thirty years. Um, I took her to see the premiere of it here in L.A. And she turned to me afterwards and she goes, "Oh, is that what you've been doing all these years?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, I. <laughs> I mean, she had no idea that that's what we do. So I think a little bit of it is also how the industry sees sound. I mean. The Academy's constantly trying to get us off the broadcast and put us on the SciTech Awards. No, now no, 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 no. Sound editing, uh, you know, it's yeah. trying to combine the sound editing and sound mixing awards. Um, so, and even people in the industry don't understand what we do. Oh, yeah. I mean, when my mom was on the Board of Governors, she had to educate them. Like Carl Malden, who was like the president of the Academy, goes, well, doesn't it just get filmed that way? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's everything that's recorded you know, on the set, right? You orchestra off stage and, uh, you know, yeah. not like um, the early days of sound where you had to, I think it was King Kong where they had they had the chance to bring portable recording equipment and they did the sound right at the same time as the movie. Um, but, yeah, so it, it's evolved, but it's still kind of the stepchild of the industry. It's like a necessary evil um, and um, I don't know. I don't know why that is. I'm hoping that this documentary that features, you know, Ben Bird and Walter Murch and Gary Rydstrom, you know, can elevate people's uh, opinion of sound to a, a better level. You know, absolutely. I, I think sa- sound to me is one of the most important part. Next to cinematography, cinematography and sound are essential. Mm-hmm. Those two, and they go hand in hand. In terms of the editing and emotion, like when, when the music, when the composer, you know, when they play the big music and you can't hear the dialogue, it's because either they think that there's no story to be told and they're just covering up with visual effects and music, right. you know, or it doesn't matter, or they they've lost their hearing and they just don't know the difference. <laughs> you know? That's very likely. Yeah. But yeah, I I, uh, I I really believe in the. Uh, the power of sound. In fact, when I when I show when I teach, I show the students the first uh, couple sequences of the river um, with no sound because that's basically how we got it, and that's what my mom used as her Bake Off reel when the Academy had a, a sound Bake Off. Yeah, for the um, for the Academy Award. And yeah. I show it to them silently, and then afterwards I say, "How did, how long did that seem? Oh, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Uh, it was 10. It was 10 minutes." <laughs> of just looking at visuals and that's how sound absorbs time, you know, yeah. and uh, creates the environment that you want to be in for, for the visuals that you see. I mean, it's so funny to me that, you know, directors and DPs, they take so long to decide the frame and the visual and the foreground and the background and all this stuff, which is important. And then, you know, and then the sound is just, Oh, let's just lay the sound in and, you know, no, you have to, to record everything separately as best as you can so that you can add things to it because we can't always take away sound. We can always add sound. Yeah. You know? I, I regret you you're talking about showing your mother-in-law making waves. Uh, my, my mother passed away, <laughs> passed away about two years ago. And I'm, I really regret that I didn't have a chance to show her that documentary because she, she sort of superficially understood what I did for a living. Um, Mm-hmm. And and she started to learn things, and you know, every now and then she'd actually say something like, you know, boy, that that line of dialogue sounded like it was, you know, came from Mars. You know, she would she would you know figure out some of the things that we did and the tricks to make things better. But I I wish she <laughs> I wish she could have seen that film because it would have really explained yeah. the whole thing. I showed it to my assistant not too long ago, 
and um she she's like oh that's what you do okay yeah. <laughs> she better know what i do <laughs> if anyone oh god well as steve as steve said everybody should see that documentary well yeah noise. just just yeah just general filmmakers just uh, having a knowledge of of one of the most important aspects of their film and how we can solve problems and mm-hmm. and take care of problems early on before they start shooting. It's just, it's, it's important. It's part of the process. We're storytellers like everyone else on the crew and we're all working for the director's, uh, director's story. But it's, but it's also a very complicated issue because, um, when you start explaining to people, Oh, there's the, the Foley and the sound effects and the background sounds and the stereo and then the, the dialogue and the ADR and the group ADR and, <laughs> It's yeah. like there's so many more elements to mm-hmm. sound than there. But Mitch's documentary really uh, lays hey. them out in a yeah. nice way that you can actually see all the different. They make it very simple, and they show the process all the way through, so you uh-huh. you can you can really understand how all the layers, all the elements come together. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, Vicky, when yeah. you teach, where do you teach? Um, right now, I'm teaching at Cal State LA. Um, I've lectured her. A class. very fascinating way of teaching. It's called an incubator class, and it's a it's a team teaching. So there's three of us doing this um, for all the various aspects of filmmaking. And they last year they made they wrote and shot the films. This year they're putting all the pieces together, doing the editing, the sound, social marketing, fundraising, um, you know the whole the whole shebang. And and then they'll have the premiere at the uh, the end of the semester in May, and even the sound team that I was talking to, I said, I said, why, why don't you while, while the editors are editing, you guys go read the script or look at the dailies, figure out what kind of sounds you want to have for your template, you know, like just start gathering sounds that you think you'll need based on the script, mm-hmm. and um, and I asked the guy, I said, well. Where do you think this film takes place? Is it is it like a rich neighborhood? Is it rural? Is it? And he's like, "Gosh, I I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> he says, "Well, we shot in you know wherever they shot." I said, "No, not where you shot it, but the actual place that the film's supposed to take place in." And he said, "Well, it's kind of like a rundown neighborhood." I said, "Okay, is it in L.A.? Is it in New York? Is it in Oklahoma? You know, if it's in L.A., are you going to have helicopters going by overhead or?" Maybe they're near a train track, you know, anything that's evocative of that environment. I always like dogs barking. Said, yeah, dogs barking <laughs> is good. Sirens, you know. Yeah, it's fun there. creating the whole the um, whole landscape of with sound. Yeah. Gunshots uh, whizzing by. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we don't. Want- I always like I always like the distant siren because that always added a, sort of a, a subliminal, you know, sort of a mm-hmm. tense kind of feel. Well, you mentioned the distant siren, and I have to tell you that there are some co- TV commercials now that are using the distant siren. Yeah. And if and I was asleep the other week, and the TV <laughs> was on, and I heard that yeah. on the commercial, and I thought, it okay, get, yeah. where is the fire? What's where going on? is yeah. And right. uh, but it and it's distant. It's not in your face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm thinking it's actually out on the street. One of my one of my favorite examples of that is in the Hitchcock film Rear Window. Mm-hmm. Whenever the villain, whenever Jimmy Stewart looks through the window and he sees the villain moving around in his Raymond apartment. Burr. Raymond Burr. Whenever he's up to no good, you hear a distant siren. 
Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh. it's just a subliminal, you know, something's going on. I still yeah. can't get over Raymond Burr, Perry Mason as the bad guy in Rear Window. I, you know. Well, he was pretty young. He was like in his 20s and they had to put him in like a white wig. And, so and all of the, yeah. He looks like he would have later when we've seen him in yeah. TV that, you know, in this first film of his. Or I don't he know. He looks it was like he would have been, you know, Perry Mason's client or, <laughs> exactly. or something. He, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't stereotyped yet. Exactly. You know? No. Exactly. No. Or pigeonholed. It's like trying to put... Tom Hanks in the bad guy role, you know, people <laughs> it just, just wouldn't accept yeah. it. And, no. Or yeah. even on or, Ordinary People, which uh, my mom and I worked on, which is mentioned in the Making Waves documentary, yeah. um, you know, it, it was the first time Mary Tyler Moore was in a dramatic role, mm-hmm. and the original preview we had up in San Francisco uh, had a shot of her just walking upstairs holding folded towels and going upstairs with the towels, and people in the audience started laughing. And Redford turned to all of us and he's like, what's going on here? What, what's, yeah. what's so funny? And then he realized, oh, because it's Mary Tyler Moore and they're expecting it to be funny. Right. So um... they had to change the whole opening, you know, to to get people on the right track. Of yeah. Richard, <laughs> Anderson, talked, Richard Anderson talked about that. He did Pennies from Heaven, which was Steve Martin's mm-hmm. uh, first dramatic film. And people were, you know, expecting it to be, you know, the sequel to The Jerk. Yeah. And... Uh, that, oh. that film had a hard time because of that. Well, you know, I've got to ask hmm. you, Vicki, um, you know, for the Hollywood Sound Museum, you know, Steve has his great Kickstarter campaign going right now. And I mm-hmm. noticed that one of the perks for people that donate $150 or, or more is a soundy cocktail reception. Of course, one drink maximum. <laughs> um, but it will be a sound person that... Whoever donates can come and mix and mingle with. I think that Vicky might be cool. there, That's too. That's what I wanted to yeah. know. Would yeah. Vicky be one of these people? It might be enough to get me to pony up another 150 <laughs> bucks for you. She's definitely That'd on the list. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I only request that we meet in a, like a, a padded room with no <laughs> reverb and no echo. <laughs> there we go. You know. oh. I mean, there's sometimes... well. Here we went to this uh, party put on by a famous company. Steve, Steve was there too. Yes, and it was so loud. They had live music. They had, you know, like uh, cement floors. I mean, it was that was, and it was for sound people. And oh, we couldn't hear yeah. each other talk when we're like a foot in front of each other. I was actually in the lounge downstairs. <laughs> it didn't bother me, but yeah, was, upstairs it was it pretty. Was so, it, was, it was, it was, yeah, it was just assaulted to me. They when had different had a environments. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, decibel level. Yeah. I have a hard time because then I'm talking really loud. I can't really hear the person. My throat gets sore the next day because I'm yelling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm very sensitive to sound, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, I've noticed that even for me, I I don't like to go into places, bars or restaurants, if I'm going to be there for a while with a lot, a group of people Mm -hmm. that have no carpet on the floor, nothing to buffer, nothing to absorb sound. And it made me very happy, Steve, because you've been here at the backstage. Ben sprung for brand new carpet in the place, so it does a All nice right. it does a nice job of muffling yes. a lot of bar noise now. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, but these you know these are things, that, and I think a lot of people don't realize how impacted they are by sound. Yep. And that's one of the yeah, great I things was, um, about this about the museum. Yeah, the museum is so important because not only can it, you know, help educate people about how to save their ears. I like I keep a pair of um, 
noise-canceling earplugs in my purse all the time because you never know. Like if you're at a concert and suddenly you're right in front of the speaker, you know, I tell I tell people, look, if you come out of a concert and your ears are buzzing, that's hearing loss. You yep. don't get that back, you know. Yeah. Yep. You've got to protect it at all costs. And, um, and there's a way, you know, to train your ears. And I think the Hollywood Sound Museum, not only is it educational, but it's going to be really fun and interactive. The most fun part, I think, for people is, is learning about Foley and how to make their own Foley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, that's going to be a big part of it. Yeah. You know, and they find out that quarter-inch tape on, you know, pulled out from a cassette uh, thing, if there are any left. Yes. Um, you Come know, to my house. Sound yeah. of, of grassy footsteps. Yeah. Or yeah. cornstarch can sound like snow. I mean, they just get so jazzed. And um, yeah. it's very fun. And I, I tell the, the students, um, I say, go, go explore, go, you know, just record some sounds that you think would sound good, you know, because they sound different in real life than they do through your headphones. So you yeah. got to, like, listen with your headphones and point the mic where, you know, just experiment, get used to how things sound in the world. We were just talking about that you know, before the, sound the show. sound of high heels down, down a hallway, you know. It was a very uh, cool sound, you that, know. I always um, tell the students that I once you wake up to it. I tell the students that I talk to all the time to go out and get a little digital recorder, like a Zoom or something. There, you know, you can get a really good one for under a hundred bucks now, and just start recording things mm-hmm. and build your library because it will be useful. And as Steve mentioned, that what did I pull out of my pocket? But a little. She's a, got one. I've got an Olympus Digital in my pocket, but. Yeah. Um, whenever I do interviews or I'm out in the field, I, oh, I've got an H4N, a Zoom H4N, and yeah. I love that mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Um, I've got the same model. Yeah. Yes, you do. Yes, I do. Yeah, I have that. I have that, too. Yeah. yeah. I have the same one. <laughs> uh, well, I feel really good that I have that You made one. the right choice. I made the right choice <laughs> knowing that these sound professionals are using it. There you go. You know, unfortunately, mm-hmm. Vicky, yeah. we are... Actually, almost out of time. That's our show. <laughs> for the whole show today. Steve always does oh, this. Oh, goodness. Um, and I wanna, it's okay. I, I talk too much anyway. But I want <laughs> I want to make sure that Steve talks about the Kickstarter campaign here. Besides the chance that people might be able to go for a soundy cocktail reception and maybe talk to you. Yeah. We've we've got a, a bunch of other neat perks. Of course, we've got the T-shirts, which which you know everyone's got to have. Got to support the Hollywood Sound Museum T-shirt. But we're also going to be producing a couple uh, CD sets of our uh, oral history program, where you can hear people like Vicky and and other people, uh, Mark Mangini, Gary Rydstrom, all these people that um, are graciously giving us their time to just talk about their craft. And uh, it's it's these are exclusive interviews you won't get anywhere else. Uh, we're also going to offer a classic uh, sound effects CD, which will offer uh, actual, you'll actually get to hear the files and the sessions of some of these original, these these classic sound effects that we've heard over and over. There might even be that certain scream on there. You'll have to listen to find out. <laughs> he knows that. I'm a big fan of, this, of yeah, Wilhelm Scream. Yeah, he knows yeah. that. She, op- she opened with it, Vicki. I don't know if you heard at the beginning <laughs> oh, of the cool. show. She started with I mean, one of I my... Can be, I can be editing at my bench. And and suddenly Janet's watching TV, and suddenly a Pringles ad comes on, and my yeah. ear immediately attunes to the Wilhelm. Yeah, there's, there's Wilhelm. one in the we Pringles. We the movie last night we were watching. My mom does that, yeah. too. She's like, Wilhelm. Yeah, she's like annoyed, right. yelling out the, the name of the screen. But, but see, the art is like how to put it in so that, pe- you know, that it yeah, works. You don't notice you it. Don't know. Well, Richard did that sure. a lot. Richard uh-huh. called it a stealth Wilhelm. Oh but, my god. Yeah. He but uh but there are other things like there's a famous chin sock and there's the great castle thunder right. and other we're gonna put those all on the 
classic sound effects CD. And you'll not only get the actual sound, but you'll hear us telling about the history and some of the more notorious usages of them. So get ready. He may be hitting it's you so, up to start so narrating. <laughs> yeah, it's so important to, to, to support this project on, on Kickstarter. I can't tell you how important it is because the industry puts us in a, you know, don't put baby in a corner. Don't put sound in a corner. Yeah. Like <laughs> if you come out and support it, you will be richly rewarded because it's not only fun, it's educational. You can impress your friends at parties with the knowledge you have about sound. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a lot of right. good things. So go to the Kickstarter. Steve can tell you where to find it. Yeah, yes. you can You can find a link on my website, which is hollywoodsoundmuseum.org. And uh, look uh, for the Kickstarter link, and you can get there that way. It's also on our Facebook page, which just search Hollywood Sound Museum, and you'll find it. It's very easy to get to. It's very easy to navigate. Yep. It's very easy to click Donate Now. Yes. Thank you very oh. much. I appreciate it. Yes, please. Please. <laughs> oh. Thank you, Vicki. Oh, Vicki, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. This has been fabulous. Anytime. We'll talk soon, dear. Thank you <laughs> oh, very much. Thanks, Vicki. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. And that was Vicki Sampson talking about her own sound work. Yep. Her mom, legendary Kay Rose's sound work. And you. And me. And you. And the Sound Museum. Yes, I and appreciate it. Now, she's been an old friend. I've, I've known her for 30 years and uh, loved working with her. And it's it's a great chance that she's she's trusted me with the museum, with her library and being yeah. a part of the museum and Kay's legacy. So I'm, I'm thrilled that that's going to be preserved. And, and Kay Rose has an incredible legacy. Yeah. When we're talking legacy. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, as we said, that is all the time we have today. Yay. Big thanks to Steve Lee for coming in for the fourth time. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you for having me. Obviously, we're going to have a fifth time this year. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> you know you'll come play. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or at least phoned it in. I phoned in my last you one. You phoned so, in yeah. the last one. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, seriously, um, the Hollywood Sound Museum, a wonderful, wonderful thing. The industry needs, this town needs, for those of you in Los Angeles. We've got museums for everything else. That's right. We need a museum for sound. And this will be different than the Academy Museum. They're this really is, this is not yeah. the same thing. They're really minimalizing their their um sound exhibits. It's it's unfortunate, but it will be represented of course in the Academy Museum, but there it's just one little tiny facet of it. But I think the Academy Museum um they're going to go heavy on costume. Yeah. Yeah, props, costumes, that sort of thing. Things that, that are tangible. The visual things, yeah. The visual things. Yeah. Like our tablescape with two Oscars. Oh, yeah, those things. Those things. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Steve. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back next week with some fun people. And still, mark your calendars for March 9th. Mark Pellington, incredible writer-director Mark Pellington, is going to be here live in studio for the hour. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Behind the Lens.